You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast, the weekly review of North Carolina politics and government news. I'm Colin Campbell, editor of the NC Insider, sitting in the hosting chair this week. And uh, joining us, we've got uh, Will Doran and Andy Spey from the News and Observer, Lauren Horsch from the Insider, and our NNO correspondent and uh, general uh, man about town, Brian Anderson, uh, joining us uh, as well this week as a special guest. So we'll get to everybody's uh, uh, coverage this week. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Of course, uh, you probably, if, you, if you're in any way reading the uh, good stuff that shows up at the NNO, you'll have seen uh, Brian's uh, profile of Dallas Woodhouse from the NCGOP and uh, look at uh, Thanksgiving at the uh, Woodhouse family residence uh, last week. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, some interesting uh, goings-on in the cases of arrested protesters from the legislature. Uh, there's an effort by some legislative leaders to get involved in that lawsuit and some interesting uh, claims being made back and forth there. And then we've got uh, a couple other items of interest uh, happening at the legislature this week. The uh, special master maps uh, have been released as of uh, Friday morning, uh, so we have a better sense for what the 2018 election landscape may look like and uh, whether people are double bunked uh, with other incumbents or not. Uh, we also had some developments uh, related to Gen X this week, uh, including a hearing at the River Quality uh, Committee that's been reviewing the contamination issues in the Cape Fear River and uh, a few instances of uh, politicians saying or doing some uh, very interesting and or controversial things. So lots to talk about. Uh, we'll try to get to as much as we can, but uh, I guess we should start with uh, Friday's news, which is the special master maps uh, that have been released. Uh, I have to admit, I haven't gotten too much in the weeds on these maps, uh, at least on the final version, but they look similar to the uh, maps I looked at earlier this week uh, with some data that I'd uh, obtained regarding uh, past election results in some of the redrawn districts in the special master's proposal. Uh, and there's some interesting things in that, in that um, Democrats, I think, would have a better time uh, winning re-election in a lot of these districts under the special master's proposal. Granted, he's only redrawing a, a small fraction of the district, so a lot of things uh, remain as they were drawn by the legislature in August and remain uh, in a situation that will help out Republicans as they try to keep their majorities and supermajorities in the legislature. But there are some uh, incumbents that are double bunked uh, in the maps. The final maps uh, appear to only double bunk uh, Senator Gladys Robinson with Senator Trudy Wade in a Guilford County district. Uh, Robinson, of course, a Democrat. Wade, a very uh, well-known Republican. And the demographics and uh, voter histories in that particular district as redrawn would seem to give uh, Robinson a narrow edge uh, in a re-election battle if the two of them were to go up against each other. Uh, so that'll be one to watch. Uh, some other uh, pairings, mostly of uh, uh, Democrats and uh, other Democrats, uh, were resolved um, as a result of the uh, special master's last-minute changes to his original uh, redistricting proposal. Uh, and you've got a number of districts where, under the special master's proposal, Republicans uh, would have a hard time facing re-election. I think most notably uh, the House budget chairman, Nelson Dollar, who would now be in a district who, which leans fairly heavily to the Democratic side, so a tough re-election battle awaits him if the special master's maps are approved, which is going to happen, if it happens, uh, sometime in January. There's a hearing that's already been set for early January when uh, both parties in the redistricting lawsuit will have a chance to uh, weigh in on whether they support the maps. We've already heard from the Republican legislative leaders who are saying that they think that this is sort of a partisan proposal that uh, ultimately all the special master is doing uh, is helping Democrats win elections. Uh, we've heard from the other side of the lawsuit that's uh, fairly happy with what the special master has come up 
up with and they think these maps are are more fair and address some of the uh, racial gerrymandering issues that were at the uh, core of this lawsuit. So uh, that's where we stand on that. Um, other news this week out of the legislature, the uh, Gen X contamination issue is still a hot topic over there. Uh, there was a House committee meeting uh, this week that uh, discussed some of those issues uh, and got some updates from uh, DEQ. And then there was a pretty big settlement uh, or I guess agreement of some kind announced between uh, the state's environmental regulators and Keymores, the uh, company that's responsible for uh, Gen X in the Cape Fear River. Well, you've looked into that a little bit. Uh, where do we stand now? What does this uh, deal roughly do for uh, the contamination stuff? Yeah, so um, the uh, the state made some big news, I guess, about two weeks ago, saying that they were going to, uh, you know, shut down uh, this plant's ability to just discharge Gen X into the Cape Fear River. Um, just the very brief synopsis here, Gen X is a, a chemical that has been linked to some pretty uh, concerning health issues in lab animals, hasn't been linked uh, to humans, at least not yet. It's still pretty untested. Um, it has been being dumped into the Cape Fear River for a long time, kind of without the state's knowledge or permission. Um, and uh, so uh, a couple weeks ago, the state said, you know, y'all have been acting in bad faith and you need to stop. That all went into effect on Thursday. Um, and uh, that wasn't the only thing that happened on Thursday, though. There were also, the state took some other actions, uh, DEQ saying that they are going to uh, probably come out with some civil actions against Chemors, which is the, the company that owns this factory within the next week or so. Um, you know, civil actions could mean really anything. You know, that could be a fine or a fee. That could be shutting it down. That could be something else. You know, th there's a whole a whole legal world out there for that. Um, and then uh, uh, they announced that the SBI has also been looking into um, at least one of the individual instances of uh, some of this stuff being discharged into the river for possible criminal charges. Um, there was an incident in October where uh, this chemical's concentration in the river spiked like a hundredfold. You, you can look at, you know, charts of everything and, you know, it's like, oh, you know, the lines are all pretty straight and stable and then it just spikes way up on like October 6th and uh, uh, to levels that, you know, appear to be definitely above what's healthy for humans. So apparently the SBI is looking to that now as well. Um, and the state is going to come back um, in January. Uh, the legislature is going to be back, I think, early January. Yeah, second week of January is the special session scheduled to do a lot of things, but yeah. I guess this week we're hearing that uh, Gen X may be on the list. Yeah, that'll definitely be on the list there, um, and they're actually, I think they plan on coming back, at, you know, at least some of these committees coming back before the session even starts to kind of, you know, maybe get some draft le legislation written or start, you know, talking about things, start you know, getting the ball rolling in, in early January. Before yeah, so I think there's, there's two, there's a House committee and a Senate committee looking at river quality issues, yeah. um, and each of them I think will meet at some point uh, again in December, possibly with some draft legislation. So far, most of their meetings have seemed to have been gathering information from state regulators and uh, academics and other people who are experts on the issue, and uh, they'll be moving forward there. I guess another interesting detail from that meeting this week was uh, Representative Jimmy Dixon and some of the news reports I saw was uh, coming around to uh, being positive towards the Department of Environmental Equality. This is a guy who, a Republican lawmaker who's probably about as critical of environmental regulations in general, general as you could possibly get, uh, but seems to be happy and feels it is important that uh, this Gen X uh, thing get some regulations. Yeah, and I think that shows that, uh, you know, at least in the southeastern court of the state, it's not just a political thing. You know, they're looking at this saying, hey, you know, this 
this is a chemical that's being dumped into drinking water, you know, Republicans drink water just like Democrats drink water, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and really certainly <laughs> if it gets really bad and, you know, I don't think we're at, like, Flint, Michigan levels yet, but I think there's certainly a worry that we could be headed that direction and certainly a desire to get ahead of that in the, the politics uh, angles of things. Uh, other big story out of the legislature this week involves uh, a group that uh, a lot of us probably don't hear much about, the Legislative Services Commission, which basically oversees the sort of back-end operations uh, at the legislative building. It's a group of uh, a number, a couple of legislators, um, and then they sort of direct uh, the legislative service officer, who is Paul Coble, a former Wake County commissioner, Republican mayor of Raleigh, uh, who's in that role sort of as, I think I've heard him described as the mayor of the legislative building before, but certainly uh, the man behind all, this, all behind the scenes operations. Um, and he's looking at getting involved in the protesters' arrest cases. Uh, Lauren, uh, you didn't write the story on that, but you've been following a little bit. What, what's new? Yeah, so as you said, Paul Coble, who is not an elected official, is the legislative service officer at the General Assembly, so he kind of oversees everything. Um, and he is the head of the Legislative Services Commission, and that's about 10 lawmakers, including uh, Senate Leader Bill Berger and House Speaker Tim Moore, and also Darren uh, Jackson, who is the minority or the Democratic leader in the House. Um, so basically, they want to get involved in these lawsuits because they, these lawsuits against the protesters, because um, they set the rules for the building and I, they wanted to criminalize certain acts in the building. But the problem is, is there's a Durham attorney, Scott Holmes. His name's pretty popular. He does a lot of these civil rights cases. Um, and he's saying that they're overstepping their constitutional boundaries by getting involved um, because when they reset the rules in 2014, um, you know, they didn't go through the regular legislative process. They didn't, you know, say we're going to introduce this bill to criminalize this act in the building. Um, instead, they just made it the rule. Yeah, it was essentially administratively done, I guess. There was no... It, it didn't go through yeah. as a bill as, uh, like, the, the chamber rules for both the House and the Senate go through, or at least to get a vote on the... House and Senate floor, but this was just done yeah, they behind just, the scenes. Well, th yeah, they just passed. They just passed it in the committee, um, and it didn't go to the floor. It didn't go to the House. No debate on it whatsoever. And from there, and so they had to be. Those rules had to be amended in 2014 because in 2013, when the Moral Monday protests were starting up, and you started to see all this action, um, you know, they said the rules were vague. You didn't really know what they could or couldn't do. Um, so that's why they had to be amended in 2014. Um, so since then, they've wanted to intervene in these criminal cases. Um, and again, Scott Holmes is arguing that there's um, some, consti some constitutional issues because they're not doing the separation of powers. You know, we have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And by making their own rules, they're essentially acting as an executive branch agency. And they seem to be adding that uh, claim to the existence of the NC General Assembly police force in general that uh, perhaps there's a concern whether they should exist as they do outside of sort of executive branch functions. Yeah, so in the General Assembly Police Department has been around for decades. I want to say back in the 70s it was created. Not sure I need to double check that, but they've been around for decades. And so they're, they really just function in that, like, two-block radius of the General Assembly. So they're at the Legislative Building and the Legislative Office Building. Yeah, and they're separate from the State Capitol yes. Police, which polices the other buildings that surround the Legislative yeah, Complex. Yeah, so it has its own police chief, Martin Brock, and then the State Capitol Police have, has its own chief And State well. Capitol Police, I believe, reports to Department of Public Safety, yes. which is an executive branch function, whereas 
the chief of the Tennessee General Assembly Police is reporting to COBOL, is that right? Yes, I do believe so. And while they just have jurisdiction in the General Assembly, they can also travel with lawmakers if necessary. So if Tim Moore says, says he's going to go back to his district and have a town hall, he can bring some General Assembly police officers with him to keep him safe if he thinks there's a threat. And they can also investigate any threats to members or their family as well. So they're just saying that that, too, is an executive function that the General Assembly is you know, doing on its own. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. Also, a notable name coming up as an attorney, potentially, in this case. Yep, Bob Edmonds. Bob Edmonds, former uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, lost his re-election battle. He's a Republican uh, judge who lost last year in the uh, general election. Uh, would be the attorney representing the Services Commission, I guess, yep, if they're able to join this case. Yeah, and so all those briefs are due by December 11th, so we could see Bob Edmonds making his, you know, comeback in the... Uh, yeah, and it's, it's interesting uh, for the who on the Legislative Services Commission's behind this. We uh, posted the uh, story on uh, newsobserver.com that Ann Blythe wrote on this um, and immediately heard from House Democratic leader Darren Jackson, who I guess is concerned that he should be a member of that or is well, a member. Well, he, but he is a member. He is apparently a member, he said um, on Twitter, but he had not received any emails or meeting notices about this, and we're not quite sure if they're supposed to meet in private because I know there are some legislative committees that do kind of meet in closed sessions for various ethical reasons. Um, so he didn't get any meeting notices, so we don't even know if they've met this year because I didn't receive any meeting notices either. So we don't know what's going on there. Yeah, all right. Well, it's an interesting battle over that. We'll see where that ends up and whether legislative rules get struck down or law enforcement agencies get changed as a result of this or uh, whether the uh, legislative leaders went out and uh, sort of keeping things the, the way they want them to be. Uh, that's sort of a look at the uh, legislative complex this week. Uh, want to not ignore the uh, the elephant in Washington, D.C. going on this week, which, of course, is the uh, Republican tax bill. Uh, Andy did a little fact check on this. Uh, I guess I should say as we record this, um, it sounds like it's going through the Senate, and they may have the votes, but I'm sure by the time we post this, uh, there'll be uh, more news to report on that. So look at us or your favorite uh, national news website to know. But uh, tell us a little about the fact check, Andy, what we're looking into on some of the claims made around this bill. Well, there are many claims around this bill. Um, but on Wednesday, uh, our Senator Tom Tillis, Republican from, I think, where is he from? Cornel Lake Norman? Huntersville, I think, is where his residence is. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he joined a couple of other senators in D.C. for a press conference um, where he uh, scolded a reporter who apparently asked him, uh, Senator Tillis, how do you feel about the fact that the tax plan, the Senate tax plan, would raise taxes on people earning 30, 40, 70 grand a year. And he said that's patently untrue on the whole, uh, end quote. And we took that to mean that, you know, he's saying that people uh, between, who earn between 30 and 70 grand a year won't have their taxes raised. Um, so as someone who is in that tax bracket, towards the bottom, um, <laughs> I we all are. <laughs> found that, uh, yeah, I found that uh, claim quite interesting. Um, and so we looked into that and found that, um, for the most part, he's, he's right. It, your taxes won't go up. In fact, in the first few years, 2019, 2020, 2021, your taxes will go down if you're making uh, between 30 and 70 grand a year. Um, the more you make, the, more, the less you pay. Yeah, that is true. Uh, but in 2027, 
there are a lot of um, deductions that phase out. And so uh, that would hurt a lot of uh, people in that bracket. And so we gave Tillis, again, who claimed that your taxes wouldn't go up if you're making between 30 and 70 grand a year, we gave him a half true because, you know, for starters, it is true, but it eventually phases out. Um, his office emailed us and said, well, we can't, we don't, we don't think, you know, that the Senate or Congress would let those uh, deductions, you know, would let taxes, they, they agreed with our, you know, assessment. And they said, yeah, they do phase out. But don't you think that Congress would do something about it by 2027 so that taxes don't rise on most Americans? And um, we don't, we as, at PolitiFact can't really give people the benefit of the doubt you're not uh, forecasting the future. You're just trying to figure out the truth as it stands today. Right, especially when it's hard enough to pass tax cuts. You know, uh, it, it, I, one can assume that it would probably be difficult 10 years from now, too, um, to put forth uh, another plan. So uh, half true for Tillis, if you're making between 30 and 70 grand a year, your taxes will go down. Um, oh, another key point is uh, the Senate plan, unlike... I can't remember if the House plan does this. It does away with the individual mandate that's in Obamacare, the, Affordable Care, the Affordable Care Act. Um, that disproportionately affects people with low incomes. And so on the surface, that might s seem like uh, a good deal, like, okay, we don't have to pay this fee anymore, or we won't have high uh, Obamacare policies. Um, but if enough people opt out of insurance, uh, and stop paying it, premiums might rise for everyone. Um, so uh, that's one thing a lot of economists consider too is, you know, if you do away with the mandate, uh, health care costs will probably end up creeping back up again. So, I mean, they're, they're high enough now, but um, it's hard to predict how that will affect, especially the lower middle class between 30 and 70,000. So. Yeah. And uh, this, uh, Tillis has sort of become a prominent voice on this whole tax package in part because he used to be Speaker of the House in North Carolina and presided over some tax cuts here. Uh, so I guess he's sort of trying to make the case that they're very similar uh, and that North Carolina is an example of a success story that should be used in Washington. I don't know if you've heard this. Stop me if you yeah. have. But Forbes recently rated North Carolina the best <laughs> place for business in the state. Yeah, I believe we had country. something about that in the Insider. And yeah. the Republicans are pretty thrilled about it. Oh, gosh. They were... You know, even the Republicans in the General Assembly who don't tweet, man, they took to Twitter that day. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen? We are rated the best state. And, yes, of course, yeah. Tillis has been out front. He wrote an op-ed for, the Wall, for uh, the Wall Street Journal saying, like, hey, if we did it in North Carolina, we can do it in D.C. And so um, – And then Roy Cooper jumping in there on Thursday with his own uh, lengthy medium post uh, making the case that actually North Carolina is an example of why the federal tax bill is a bad idea because of uh, potential cuts to various education, health care, and other services. Right. And I can give you sort of a preview. We're fact-checking that, too. Okay. Um, he made a couple <laughs> claims in there. Uh, he said the lowest – one claim he said that I, I can get into already is he said um, that – lower-income people would be worse off in the end uh, under the, he said, the tax plan. But in reality, there's two plans. There's a House plan and a Senate plan. Um, that phrasing, in the end, or uh, is a little squishy because in, is he referring to the immediate future overall? It's, in the, it's uh, the basis for what'll probably, what would be another half true, um, which is 
you know, 10 years from now, yeah, you would probably be worse off. But in the immediate future, you're not. Um, he also said the one, the one that we're going to write about is he said that it uh, benefits, I'm trying to remember the phrasing, but that half of the cuts go to the top 1% uh, of Americans, uh, the Americans who make the most money, um, and that I'll have to explain that at another time. Yeah, we'll probably get to that maybe on next week's Domecast yeah. when the fact check is uh, completed and we have a ruling for uh, Governor Cooper on that. Uh, well, I saved the uh, the best for last in this segment. Um, you've probably, if you pay much attention to the in and out over the Thanksgiving holidays, you may have seen the uh, uh, double feature involving our uh, good friend uh, Dallas Woodhouse of the uh, North Carolina Republican Party, uh, Brian Anderson, a former in and intern and a prominent student journalist in this state, uh, has been spending a lot of time uh, with Dallas Woodhouse to report yes. this story. Uh, I guess, Brian, t- tell us a little bit about how how much time did you spend with uh, with <laughs> Dallas as a as you tried to get a sense for for his personality and how he came to be the the most prominent Republican voice in North Carolina in a sense? Well, first, some quick context. Dallas Woodhouse is the executive director of the North Carolina Republican Party here in the state, uh, and he assumed that role since October of 2015. I'm currently a student wrapping up at Elon University, and in that capacity, last year I interviewed Dallas Woodhouse and thought he would be an interesting person to do an in depth personality profile on him. That's something I've always had in mind, and finally we got to doing it for the News and Observer. Overall, I probably spent around maybe 30 hours to 40 hours with Dallas. That's a lot of time. <laughs> and uh, the reporting spanned over about two months. We went to the state fair together. We went. I went to his house on Thanksgiving. I got to go to an NC State football game at Wake Forest, uh, which they unfortunately lost for Dallas. Yeah, uh, yeah so, big NC State fan, I guess. So I and I spent about two full days with him at his job on Hillsborough Street in the party headquarters. So I saw him in a wide variety of contexts, but it probably spanned a little bit less than two months overall. The reporting process. Yeah. So what what were your biggest takeaways about you know how did Dallas get to be the sort of outsized voice of uh, conservative politics that he's become today? Well, not to start too far back, but when he was in preschool, because <laughs> I think that's an important starting start point. young, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a story we had. Of, I was interviewing his mom, Joyce, and Dallas had a, a preschool uh, that was right behind his backyard. And his dad did some newspaper publishing up in Rocky Mount, which is about an hour away from Raleigh. And Dallas did not like going to preschool wanted to watch the prices right as any any other any good American kid yeah. would. <laughs> so so what he would do is he, he would go and sh- when when the leaves would fall uh, during the fall and the winter you could see the house from the preschool and he picked up on that quick. So what he would do is he'd shout, Daddy, I want to watch the prices right. Pick me up and he would scream at the top of his lungs and he said, that's probably one of the reasons I'm so loud to this day. <laughs> so if you want to understand his personality and that side of him, I would look no further than when he was about four or five, but if you wanted to understand the professional side of Dallas, uh, he grew up with his dad as uh, a person who followed many different types of candidates and voted on people rather than party, though he was a conservative Democrat. Uh, His mom, Joyce, describes herself today as a single-issue voter concerned about mental health. And as parents, they would take Dallas to the polls to sort of inform him about the importance of elections and politics. So it was something that was always present in their lives. And Joyce actually had her wedding reception in the governor's mansion. So politics was always a part of the family. 
For Dallas, he worked as a television reporter in the late 1990s, and he witnessed what he describes as democratic corruption <laughs> during his time as a reporter. So that's how he pivoted away from uh, sort of neutral reporting into very partisan politics. He joined Americans for Prosperity around 2006, which is a very uber-conservative yeah, watchdog. Yeah, funded by the Koch brothers. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and after that, he became the party's executive director, which he currently serves today. Uh, and that that's sort of the personal and professional side of how Dallas got to be the way he is. Yeah, and I guess he was he brought into the Republican Party role sort of in the aftermath of some of the infighting they had with uh, Hassan Harnett, the sort of outsider who had been elected a few years back to the chairman role, was later ousted from that role as a result of some allegations going around. And then Dallas was brought in toward, towards the end of that um, to sort of uh, clean things up and try to bring everybody back together. Yeah, and as, as Dallas would quickly point out, and many of his staffers I talked to, the party was a, really a mess by the time Dallas came on board around uh, late 2015. And like you said, Hassan Harnett was the chairman, which is a different role from executive director, and Hassan Harnett was replaced in April of 2016, so there was a little bit of overlap between their two periods. Uh, but overall, what I would say is that Dallas uh, has helped with fundraising for the party. He's really been a bombastic, larger-than-life television personality Yeah, he as makes well. so many cable news appearances with sometimes bringing props like handcuffs. Exactly. Um, that, that was great. Yeah, and I mean, it, he, he really is you know, capable of taking a two-minute interview and turning it into something that we'll remember a year later, as we do with the handcuffs. So, so just for some context on that handcuff story for listeners who aren't as familiar, uh, it was the 2016 presidential election about a week before the general election on November 8th, and Dallas goes on MSNBC. And he's with Haley Jackson, and they want to talk about voter. Su- she wants to talk to him about voter suppression because Dallas has sent a letter to county elections boards saying that we don't need early voting on on Sunday. And Democrats attacked that as sort of racially unfair toward African Americans. So that was the intent. Dallas was supposed to be uh, defending uh, gerrymandering as well as some of these controversial voter policies. But what Dallas did mid-interview was he went into his pocket pulled out a pair of handcuffs, shook it, and uh, said Hillary Clinton could be wearing these on Election Day. The We don't have a voter suppression uh, problem in North Carolina. The Democrats have a, a, the real problem here. So he that's his yeah, way of pivoting. Pivoting yeah. away. So now that what we remember is that there were handcuffs in that interview, and we don't really remember what he said about the whole voter suppression issue in North Carolina that he was brought on there to talk about. But I, I got to tell you one of my favorite stories. This was... Uh, back in October, in I, I want to say November 2016, when I was in or October, when I was interviewing Dallas before the presidential election year, I wanted to ask him about health care and why college students should vote for Republicans because I was a junior in college at the time at Elon University, and he got off on this weird tangent where before I did the interview, he asked me to email him three to five photos of Oreo cookies. So I have, I've never heard this as a prerequisite for an interview. Yeah, I remember your confusion yeah. when we were talking about this at the time. I was like, why <laughs> am I being asked to send this man some Oreo cookies? Did you call him up and say, Dallas, were you hacked? I got an no. email about Oreos. <laughs> no, yeah. I did what any good reporter would do. I agreed to the conditions sure. and then asked later. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then I get to the interview with him, and I ask him right out of the gate, 
why'd you have me send these pictures of Oreos? And we, he says, I'll tell you at the end of the interview. So we get like 30 minutes later, he finally says, Oreos, Oreos. When it comes to healthcare, Democrats want to give you the plain vanilla and chocolate Oreo that you had in the past. They want to give you the healthcare, they say. Republicans want to give you choice. There's vanilla, there's mint, there's peanut butter, there's many different types of Oreos. And that's why college students should vote for Republicans. We'll give you choice, unlike the Democrats. So that was why I had been asked to send him some photos of Oreo yeah. cookies. And I've never heard that analogy before. On <laughs> No, and you probably never will. Yeah. But that, that just speaks to the point of Dallas's ability to get a message out and his ability to, to really be this larger-than-life television personality. And whether you like him, whether you dislike him, I talk to critics and supporters alike, they acknowledge he's very effective at his job. And part of that is to get the Republican platform out there. And he sees these unorthodox um, marketing strategies as a way to do so. One question I really don't know that to this day, and I think the, the biggest ongoing question that many people will, will have after reading it is, does Dallas Woodhouse believe what he says? And is he someone who's making honest arguments? What was interesting was I talked to his boss, who's the executive director uh, chairman Robin Hayes, uh, at Dallas's executive director, Robin Hayes is the chairman. And I asked, does Dallas believe what he says? And uh, Chairman Hayes said, yes. Dallas said, yes. But I talked to former colleagues of Dallas's who said, Dallas believes the ends justify the means. But in order to get to those ends, he, he believes in conservative policies. So whether or not Dallas has a win at all cost mentality and believes everything he says, that's a very fair, open question that probably he can't even answer, and I certainly can't. Yeah, before we move on to the Woodhouse Thanksgiving, which is a whole other aspect of this, um, I mean, we've been talking sort of how Dallas is effective. I, I think we should probably talk about the moment where he was probably most ineffective That's and sort of fell on his face a little bit with uh, election night 2014, the uh, now infamous video of him being interviewed on Channel 17, uh, where he'd had a few drinks, uh, was a little unsteady, a little incoherent uh, yeah. in his interview, uh, talking about Tom Tillis's victory. Uh, Dallas hasn't spoken publicly uh, much about this since, but he talked to you a little about it and sort of uh, how he's changed since then. So tell us about that. Yeah, it was a, it was a very difficult conversation. Just to, to give some context to it, uh, it had been brought to my attention. I had found out through some reporting that Dallas had a DWI when he was 23 years old. So I asked him about that initially, and he said it's something that still haunts him to this day. And uh, he doesn't describe himself as someone who's had addiction problems. He likes drinking a lot, but there's periods where he hasn't had alcohol at all. So that was sort of the, the context that he, he, he provided. To the 2014 election night specifically, Dallas had worked as, um, I think, president, I want to say, of Carolina Rising, which basically poured in $5 million almost exclusively to the Tillis campaign. So during the interview, Dallas had bragged about pouring money into the Tillis campaign, and he was celebrating a victory at the time, so he had had too much to drink. He was wearing a red Tillis hat. He was wearing sunglasses. He stumbled a bit as he walked uh, mid-interview, and it was very clear that he had had too much that night, and he says that's still the most embarrassing, worst moment of his, his life to this day. And that's very difficult for him to talk about. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I had gotten to interview Joyce, his mom. 
And it quickly became apparent to me in that interview, I'd asked her about the Tillis election night, making sure not to get specific. And she didn't know about Dallas having too much to drink that night. Uh, she still, I don't think, unless she just read the story, doesn't know about the DWI Dallas had. And this is something that Dallas has kept very private to some of his family members and some of his closest friends not knowing about it. Um, I interviewed Bill Gilbert uh, and, and some other friends. Brian um, was another one who was close to Dallas. And they very few people knew that Dallas had issues drinking. Uh, and to this day, he has not had alcohol since that 2014 election night, he tells me. Mostly because he wants to say he want, he says he wants to set an example for his kids, and he just made a promise to himself that would not happen again. And Perry Woods, I'll end on this one. Uh, Perry Woods is a Democratic operative, and I asked Perry Woods about this. Uh, and Dallas also had gallbladder surgery and lost 80 pounds recently. And Perry Woods said, in the respect of uh, losing weight. And uh, Perry Woods, a prominent Democratic strategist, Democratic so often on the opposite he's, end. He's very involved in the Raleigh city elections. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's where some of our readers might know his name. It, and they'll spar on television. He's a big Democrat. But Perry Woods said what Dallas has done, taking care of himself, is, is an inspiration even to him. And that was probably the only praiseworthy thing he said about Dallas Woodhouse in our entire interview. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's certainly some respect there, even as they disagree on everything. And speaking of... The disagree on everything in respect. You were at Woodhouse Thanksgiving with uh, Brad Woodhouse, obviously a very prominent uh, Democratic uh, consultant, recently in the news this past week because he was renting his Airbnb to the woman from Project Veritas who was trying to infiltrate the Washington Post with a fake Roy Moore story yeah. uh, and embarrass the Washington Post. Unclear if she had any role in uh, any attempt to get at Brad Woodhouse uh, by staying in his Airbnb, but interesting to see his name on that. But you were with Thanksgiving with Brad Woodhouse's family, Dallas's Woodhouse, Dallas Woodhouse's family, and uh, the mother Joyce Woodhouse. So, what was that like compared to you know what a normal functional family's for Thanksgiving might look like? <laughs> well, I'll give you three words: uh, calm, peaceful, and loving. Those are not three words I would use to describe the Thanksgiving with the Woodhouses. Yeah. I would probably uh, go with uh, loud at the top of the list. But what's interesting was they seldom talked about politics, and they still constantly fought. Yeah, a lot of the fights seem to be around whether they should eat out or eat in. Yeah, uh, uh, Dallas's mom, Joyce, had a broken foot, and she does all the cooking, and she's very... Uh, very strong-willed, to, to put it mildly, and she wanted to have Thanksgiving and do the cooking, and Dallas wanted to go to a restaurant instead so the mom could rest up, and uh, Brad, he wanted to have dinner in with, with the mom and have it at the house. So for five days, Dallas would not talk to Brad, and they were fighting over Thanksgiving before Thanksgiving started <laughs> and before either of them had seen each other. <laughs> and... Oh, one of my favorite things from Thanksgiving was uh, there's this prayer. They do a prayer around the table, and Dallas does it every year. Uh, but Brady did it this year, and Brady is Brad's younger uh, son. And Dallas uh, taps me on the shoulder. He pulls me aside and says, Brian, follow me. And we go into the, the kids' room where Brady and everyone's playing, and he says, Brady, I want you to pray for President Trump. In, in your in your remarks and 
Brady refused to do so, <laughs> deciding to maintain the peace. Yeah, and then you asked Brady I why. Asked why, and he's like, "Oh, my dad would have killed me." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> knows uh, how to you know keep the peace at least on his side of the family for sure. So it certainly was a loud Thanksgiving. You mentioned yeah. uh, their mom being strong-willed. Uh, most many of our listeners will probably remember her from when she called into C-SPAN yes. when they were when Brad and Dallas <laughs> were fighting, and she yeah. called in. At, uh, and sounded very embarrassed that they yeah. were... Sp- that Asked they them were to get it out of their system before Christmas. Yeah. And so that, you know, memorable line, oh, God, it's mom, when they realized that Joyce from Raleigh was someone they knew. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was 2013, I want to say, C-SPAN, or 2014, and uh, the, there was this documentary called Woodhouse Divided, which had come just come out about the brother rivalry. So they go on television on C-SPAN to promote it early in the morning, and they get a surprise call from their mom, and being the, the, the skeptic journalist that I am, I, I thought, oh, they had to be in on it or there's some larger conspiracy. No, they genuinely did not know their mom was calling on uh, the show. And uh, Joyce said, yeah, it's, it's Joyce, your mother. And then Brad uh, is just shocked in silence and Dallas says, oh, God, it's mom. And uh, Joyce says, I hope you get this out of your, uh, your system before Christmas. Um, and one of my favorite lines was the C-SPAN host asked, what's it like raising these two boys? And she replied, well, it hasn't been easy. Yep. <laughs> and not much has changed in that respect. Yeah, oh for sure. Gosh. Well, we'll, we'll uh, end that on that note. Brian, thanks for coming in. Uh, you can read both of the uh, stories you've done on that at newsobserver.com. And then if you happen to be a podcast fan because you're listening to this, uh, Brian has a podcast version of his Dallas Woodhouse profile up on his uh, weekly State of the Media podcast. So you can search that on your fave podcast apps and uh, listen to that as well. Uh, real quickly before we get into a break, since I'm stuck hosting this week, I have to shamelessly plug you my own stories. You get to host, Colin? You're yeah. not stuck hosting? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Shamelessly plug my own story before we run out of time, and that's uh, the story I did this week on the Sharpsburg municipal election. You may ask, where is that and why should I care? Uh, it's because this town near uh, Wilson and Rocky Mount had an um, interesting situation with their election where one of the polling places ran out of ballots for two and a half hours because they only brought in 12 ballots, so a number of folks uh, were not able to vote. The uh, African-American candidate for mayor ends up losing by uh, three or four votes, uh, and now there's an effort, uh, including the uh, social, co- the Southern Coalition for Social Justice getting involved in seeking a new election there. All of this complicated by the fact that the state's uh, elections board uh, remains vacant and has been for about six months now. So you can read that story uh, actually at wilsontimes.com because uh, we partnered with our friends at the Wilson Times to uh, cover that story with the insider. So uh, read that there. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, It had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider. Now it's time for everyone's favorite point in the podcast, where we do Headliner of the Week and ask our panelists uh, what the biggest uh, political story was or newsmaker was this week. Uh, let's start off with uh, Will uh, Doran. Colin, Colin, I, I got to oh. stop you there. I, got yeah? a, I brought a special surprise. Oh, really? In honor of this <laughs> being Headliner of the Week. 
Uh, and I tweeted it out, and I think someone on this panel is already trying to I see to Lauren giggling, laughter. so <laughs> uh, I'm a little scared. <laughs> so, so being the journalist and the researcher that I am, what I decided to do was go through the archives of Domecast podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've assembled for you, Colin, and everybody here a list of all 128 episodes with the winners of Domecast. Oh, wow. <laughs> both the panelists... And the actual uh, headliner of the week. And I can tell you some of the results so far that you have 14 victories on headliner. Oh, sweet. But unfortunately, Will and Craig have 19 and beat you. Wow. And Craig's beaten me even yeah. without having not been a panelist recently because he's no longer covering politics. Lynn, however, she's crushed all of y'all with really? 28. So oh, okay. I just had to I just had to put yeah. that out there and, so what and it give that like for you. So it sounds like just that Colin is very bad at this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, Lauren's got three, so she's got some catching up to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd say Lauren has not been a member I that ask long. If you're still going to class, if you're doing all this. <laughs> I'll, I'll say for the record, I sadly maybe this will change by the end of the day. I haven't won a headliner, but Lynn Bonner nominated me as a headliner. So I kind of won. <laughs> yeah, have you have you won as headliner, or I know your nominees have won. Uh, none of my nominees okay. have won yet. Well, we, we might change, but uh, <laughs> let's let's find out. But we'll we'll start with Will, and we'll save yours for last. All right. Um, well, I I feel like I should nominate Brian for this excellent research <laughs> that he has just brought to us. Um, All time stats. <laughs> but I'm going to stick with the uh, the traditional rules and nominate someone who is in the headlines. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Um, I'm going with uh, Representative Walter Jones. Um, I wrote a story uh, uh, late last night. He came out um, as one of the uh, co-sponsors of a bill uh, up in D.C. that would uh, basically put a stop to the taxpayer-funded settlement fund that uh, that members of Congress get to take advantage of whenever they're accused of workplace misdeeds. Um, this has been in the news because of all the sexual harassment stuff. Um, it's also used for you know racial discrimination complaints, gender discrimination complaints, things like that. Um, his bill um, that he is on uh, would only stop those payments for the sexual harassment things, and it would force uh, the members of Congress who are accused of sexual harassment and want to make a settlement to pay that basically out of their own pockets instead of being able to use taxpayer money. Um, this, I mean, it shocked me. We've spent $17 million in the last 20 years paying out settlements with this fund. Yeah, um, and we still don't know who most of these uh, politicians are, I guess, because aside yeah. from the ones that have been released in the last couple weeks. Yeah, well, and even like um, uh, John Conyers, the, the the Michigan Democrat who's been in the news for it, he didn't even use this fund uh, for his settlements that have made the news. Uh, he used, he paid for it with his own office budget. Um, so, you know, it it goes even well beyond that $17 million. But, uh, but yeah, and it, that to your point, Colin, that's another part of his bill. It would out all of the lawmakers who have used this process before. It would identify them all publicly. It would force them to repay the money to the government. Um, so that could be a ton of scandals if this bill passes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting. Um, Jones was a co-sponsor on it. Uh, the only other person from North Carolina in the House that was on it was uh, Robert Pittenger, another fellow Republican. And if you look at the list of the co-sponsors, it's all Republicans, or at least mostly Republicans. There's about 25 or 30 different co-sponsors. So I wonder if, you know, maybe there are some prominent Democrats who they are hoping to, you know, have, you know, names kind of dragged through the mud on this. 
Um, or if it's just that they know that this is going to just die in committee and it's never going to go anywhere and they're hoping to get some good publicity before Roy Moore joins Congress. Yeah. Um, so we'll <laughs> certainly be interested to see where this bill could goes. Be either or. All um, right. <laughs> so uh, Walter Jones in the hat uh, for this week's headliner. Uh, Andy Spay, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, well, let's give you a mic. First, I would like to give a shout out to Robert Howard, uh, who some of you may know is the communications director for the Democratic Party in North Carolina. I asked for uh, submissions on Twitter uh, for headliner of the week. And um, he sent us a story, not from North Carolina, but uh, from Florida. It says that, I'll just read the headline, Rick Scott, Oh my, my boss just walked in the door, so I'm <laughs> very distracted. Uh, Perfect fl- timing. Uh, what, what, what was that hand, honor you were going to say? A consultant for Florida Governor Rick Scott denies he used ice penis to hump mannequin. Uh, this is a real headline. I wish we uh, had those kinds of headlines here in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely Florida politics for sure. Let the record show Jordan Schrader is now shaking his head, which you cannot uh, see on a podcast. But my headliner, I should uh, yeah, say. Uh, this is all blamed to Robert Howard, spokesman for the North Carolina Democratic Party. Robert's going to get me in trouble. My headliner <laughs> is uh, Francis DeLuca, who put out a uh, newsletter on behalf of Civitas on Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday is no- The Tuesday after Thanksgiving is known as Giving Tuesday, where people often donate uh, and volunteer uh, to help charities. Um, and, and his... Uh, newsletter on Tuesday for Civitas uh, that ended with a request for money. He talked, he wrote about the uh, idea of giving back as a leftist idea that uh, promotes that guilt onto everyone who makes money. Um, So it's almost like paying taxes, having to hear about Giving Tuesday. That's right. Uh, And uh, I I suppose under that logic, um, he told us that it wasn't a story later and that um, questioned why we didn't put the full newsletter on uh, online and on Twitter. Um, I assume he thinks that that would have helped his case. but um, Helped him to solicit donations, which was, I guess, the point of the newsletter that came out? Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so, but that's my headliner. Civitas, what was the – let me look up the actual headline. Uh, it was something along the lines of um, – let's see. I apologize for not having this ready. Um. Well, we'll just we'll put Francis DeLuca in the hat oh. uh, since he's outgoing as uh, stepping down soon. I guess as Civitas leader. Right, right. He. Oh yeah, that's right. He's retiring. Yeah. Conservative group says Giving Tuesday comes from quote leftist idea and then asks for money. Yeah. There Good headline go. and one that was I guess tweeted out by Chuck Todd of uh, Meet the Press this week. So a little national attention to a North Carolina story. That's right. Thank you, Chuck. All right, next up, uh, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? So I have a very wholesome headliner of the week. After yeah, I Andy. think we, uh, we've um, uh, gotten our R rating for the week. Yes, we got to get that E for explicit soon. Um, no, kidding, we yeah. won't. Um, but so this is only vaguely political, and I know I do this a lot, but I just want to talk about Christmas trees for a second. Um, <laughs> so we know there's a Christmas tree shortage, so your prices are going up. I know my Fraser fir was like $19 more expensive than it was last year. Um, because I keep track of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, are you like, you have a notepad like Joe Gillio does writing down? <laughs> Tracking Christmas no, tree prices. No, I just remember because I, I split costs in Venmo with my boyfriend. So oh, that's yeah. how I could go back and look. 
Anyway, so there's a Christmas tree shortage, but there are two big, beautiful Christmas trees on state property this week. Um, so the big um, Christmas tree got put up at the state capitol, and it's facing Fayetteville Street, and that is actually a tree from Ashe County. And then we also have the Christmas tree in the General Assembly. Um, there's actually two there, and then a third in the Legislative Office Building. And I, Are all of those from... Avery County? Yeah, Washington. the same yeah. farm provided those. Apparently has a stand at the farmer's market, according yes. to Paul Coble. So those are from um, Avery County, Jennings Farm, I do believe. Um, and if you know anything about Fraser firs or evergreen trees in general, North Carolina produces a lot of them, and it's a very big deal for a lot of people out in western North Carolina. And I know the lawmakers from that part of the state are very proud of the industry that uh, Christmas trees give to them. So there's my wholesome headliner of All the right. week. Right, state government Christmas trees in the hat. And I think as we're recording this, uh, Roy Cooper, I think, is doing some sort of a contest judging yes, there was which a Christmas trees get to be in the Capitol building. Yes, there was a Facebook Live going on. It was not finished when I came up here, to my knowledge, but I also got distracted by other things. So we might find out what the other Christmas trees are. All right. Stay tuned for that. Uh, and uh, next up, uh, Brian Anderson. Brian, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to have to give a quick honorable mention uh, to Emily Weeks, uh, who opened up in, for the Woodhouse profile and shared a story about yeah. having open heart surgery. Yeah, NCGOP communications director, I believe is her title. Yes. Uh, she's the press secretary for the party. And uh, she had open heart surgery and, and told me a story about that. And uh, Dallas coming to visit her on Christmas Eve. And uh, it was very kind of her to, to open up about that. And also, I wanted to give an honorable mention to Cooper and Jackson. Uh, they're the, the Woodhouse kids, and Cooper in particular, uh, for suggesting in the Thanksgiving article that his dad, Dallas, cusses for work. Yeah. So some honorable mentions yeah. <laughs> are deserved there. Not uh, at home, but at work. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you might have to fact check that one. But my headliner of the week's got to be Dallas Woodhouse. He's the person I did a profile on for, for two months. Um, bombastic, compassionate, enthusiastic, everything in between. Uh, Dallas Woodhouse is going to be my headliner of the week. All right. Dallas Woodhouse in the hat. And uh, Jordan Schrader's in the room. Jordan, you have a headliner or? Jordan does not have a headliner, so Shakes we will stick with the Andy four contenders we've got here. Uh, we've got Dallas Woodhouse in the hat, along with uh, state government Christmas trees, Francis DeLuca, and the uh, Giving Tuesday controversy, and Walter Jones for his uh, bill involving uh, sexual harassment settlements in Congress. And out of those, um, I think given the uh, fact that we're still the week after Thanksgiving um, and uh, Dallas Woodhouse was kind enough to let reporters tag along for a very contentious Thanksgiving uh, and open up about a lot of uh, aspects of, uh, of his life and his career. Um, we're going to give this one to Brian Anderson. Add one to your, your stats uh, ongoing for how many headliners the, the you've got. The zero goes year. to a one. <laughs> yep, exactly. So your, your first, uh, hopefully not last, uh, victory in headliner of the week. Uh, for your nomination of Dallas Woodhouse. And that is, uh, I believe, all the time we've got this week. So thanks so much for listening. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider. For Brian Anderson, Lauren Horsch, Andy Spay, and Will Doran, uh, we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.